Good afternoon or good morning, wherever you are on behalf of RBCS. Welcome to this webinar on whether testing is a waste of time and money. I am Rex Black, president of RBCS, testing leader, providing consulting, training, and expert services. In the 25 years since our founding, RBCS has served over a thousand clients on six continents, spanning all areas of software and system development, from embedded systems to gaming software to banking and insurance to pharmaceuticals to defense systems. With other, over 35 years of software and systems engineering experience, I've worked with clients from small startups to Fortune 20 global enterprises. I've experienced helping clients apply testing best practices in a wider variety of development life cycles, including Kanban, Scrum, DevOps, Waterfall, and Spiral. I am also the most prolific author practicing in the field of software testing today, having written 14 books and dozens of articles over the last 20 years. And I'm founder and past president of the ISTQB and the ASTQB, past chair, co-author, editor, and project manager for many of the ISTQB syllabi. Before we start the presentation, a couple housekeeping notes. If you have any questions during the course of the webinar, please feel free to submit them throughout the presentation via your webinar interface, but please note they are answered only at the end. There is no need to ask for presentation copies as the presentation is already on the web, rbcs-us.com, basic library. By attending this webinar, you are automatically registered for the free e-learning drawing. Check your email over the next couple days and watch the spam filter. Hope you enjoy this free webinar from RBCS. We do these free webinars as a service to the software testing community because at RBCS, we are a not just for profit company. However, we do need to keep the lights on. So if you feel these webinars demonstrate an understanding of your testing challenges, please allow us to bid on the next testing consulting, assessment, training, or expert services work you have. On with the show. If we can get PowerPoint to cooperate, that is. So, is software testing a waste of time and money? It's, uh, some people seem to think so. Uh, a number of years ago, there was a uh, infamous bomb thrower who made famous comments at a uh, testing conference saying testing is dead. Um, interestingly enough, this same individual is now trying to wheedle his way back into the testing world and claim relevance after 10 years out of the field. I'm not sure how one does that. But it is true that testing does tend to get shortchanged in schedules and budgets and staffing and so forth. And it's hard to see that management treats it as a high priority sometimes. Sometimes it seems as if management is kind of like, yeah, you know, whatever we can get around to. Um, and uh, if that's true in your organization, you're, you're not alone, but it's certainly not a smart way to think about testing because done properly, testing will provide a lot of very important um, benefits and uh, measurable benefits uh, and help organizations hit uh, key objectives from a quality and testing point of view. So let's look at the business case for testing or the broader case for testing here over the next few minutes. So, for something that was proposed to be dead or a waste of time, uh, there's sure a lot of time and money spent doing it. Uh, I love this scene from uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail about the, the dead man being brought out and he's not, not quite dead yet. If you've not seen that movie, it's, it, is a, it is a true geek classic and uh, worth watching. I've worked in many organizations where people could quote Monty Python movies of various kinds, including that one at length, and this scene was always a favorite. Um, so what does this have to do with testing being not quite dead yet? Well, uh, 
I saw a report from Forrester a while ago that estimated that $50 billion, that's billion with a B, is spent annually on testing. Now, if we assume $100,000 a year as a sort of a typical cost per tester, um, that's half a million testers, and that $100,000 uh, fully burdened salary rate cost per tester is probably high because you have um, uh, testers that work for considerably less than that in various offshore locations. So 500,000 people is, is uh, almost certainly a low estimate, um, especially given that there are uh, 500,000 people who have gotten the ISTQB Foundation certificate over the last 20 years. So it's hard to imagine that we've achieved 100% certification of all of the testers uh, since the uh, people keep coming to get to continue to get the certification at, at a uh, increasing rate. So uh, definitely we can say there's, there's at least a half a million uh, people, probably more out there doing testing, uh, 500 billion or $50 billion being spent on it. So that's uh, certainly not, not in the category of dead, is it? But, how does it rate relative to overall priorities that organizations have? Uh, excuse me. Um, so Gardner has an estimate of, uh, sorry, I'm gonna turn off my phone ringer here so that that doesn't happen again. Gardner has an estimate of four trillion, trillion with a T, annual spending on IT. So if the Forrester and Gartner estimates are both just about right, that's approximately one out of 80, every $80 uh, is spent on testing. So less, uh, slightly over 1%. Uh, now this figure is disappointing because we have looked at uh, a number of clients defect management uh, statistics and found that uh, 10 to 25% of IT budgets are often lost on costs of external failure. In other words, defects that escaped into production that probably could have been caught prior to that if they'd followed testing and quality assurance best practices. So that would say if, if 10, let's say 10% is the, the figure, and I think that's the, the low end of the range, but let's say that's the typical figure of waste due to avoidable costs of external failure, then of that $4 trillion, about $400 billion is being wasted um, due to not testing enough, while only one-eighth of that amount was spent to avoid that waste. Uh, so, hmm, that's, that doesn't seem right, huh? Something's, <laughs> there's some sort of disconnect here, okay? And in my experience, the disconnect, um, often has to do with the fact that we as test professionals don't always effectively connect what we do to uh, the people who should value testing. And so they don't really know that they should value testing. And um, it's important to start with this question of, well, who are my stakeholders? Who, who am I doing this for? Um, both on the business side and on the technical side. So, Who's a stakeholder? So a stakeholder is anybody who has an interest in your, the testing activities that you're carrying out, the testing work products you're creating, or it's the quality of the system which is ultimately delivered. 
And the stakeholder's interest can be direct or indirect. Um, so don't cast your net too, too uh, not widely enough, too narrowly, I guess if that's the right word. Uh, make sure that you've identified those folks um, because if, if these stakeholders don't appear to value testing, uh, there are three things that could be happening. Either you're not doing the testing properly, so you're, you're not delivering the value you should, um, or you are doing it properly, but while you're creating the value, you're not delivering the value to them in the sense of they, they don't feel as if they are receiving it or they, they actually are not receiving it because you're not actually carrying out the things that are important to them. Or um, you are doing it, you just haven't called their attention to the fact that the value is indeed being delivered. So let's look at some values that you can deliver and the stakeholders who would care about those things to help better position you to uh, uh, make your case. If we can get PowerPoint to uh, behave here, uh, great. Spinning hard disk light and uh, no advancing slide. Ah, there we go. Now something does appear to be about to happen. Speaking of bugs and things that should be tested better. Um, PowerPoint, yeah. Um, whoops, okay, now hang on. Let's, of course, it went too far. Okay. Uh, all right. So, the thing that most people think about first off with, um, with testing and the value of testing is, um, sorry, I had to check a, check a screen over there. Um, are we finding defects, especially important defects? Uh, so um, an important defect would be one that ends up being fixed prior to release, as opposed to one that ends up being deferred. We'll get to those in a minute. And there is a technique that is called cost of quality that can be used to quantify the value that's uh, being delivered um, through the uh, finding of important bugs. Now, I am not have time to go into cost of quality here as part of this webinar, but there's a bunch of recorded information out on the uh, RBCS YouTube channel about cost of quality that you can uh, check out and listen to for free. And there's also an article that describes calculation of cost of quality and a handy dandy Excel calculator uh, that you can download and use, again, all for free, um, to uh, uh, quantify the value. Now, the, the set of stakeholders who care about important bugs being found and fixed prior to release is a pretty wide set, right? I mean, it's certainly the developers and uh, the other people who are involved in building the system, as well as people who are more interested in what's going to ultimately be delivered, like product managers and uh, customer support and the end users themselves and so forth. Now, one caveat here is that uh, we have to be careful not to overemphasize this source of value. Uh, yes, it's important, but it's not the only one. Pardon my quick sip of some liquid there to wet my mouth. Um, so it's important, but um, it shouldn't be seen as the only thing that you're doing. Um, so consider it in balance with some of the other things that we're going to talk about. Now, another caveat is beware of people who 
um, misuse the defect reporting process uh, in in various ways. Uh, there can be situations that create political problems in organizations associated with uh, bug reports. Um, like what one example that I'm seeing right now, some analysis that I'm doing is uh, one group involved in testing of this particular system systematically over uh, estimated or, or just over assigned the severity of defects. I believe this was tied to the fact that the exit criteria for that particular phase of testing or level of testing were defined in such a way that uh, incentivized um, defining the severities improperly. So that's one example. Another thing that I've seen is just badly written defect reports that end up making people very unhappy. So, you know, you, you really do have to be uh, very cognizant of um, possible negative effects. And if you're managing testing, you want to make sure that one of the things that you're doing is carefully reviewing uh, defect reports and uh, deferral rates and so forth to see, you know, are we, um, uh, are we doing our job properly? Now, speaking of deferred bugs, um, there is value in deferred bugs. There's value in finding things that don't get fixed because you, if you do so, you may be able to find workarounds or other mitigation options. Um, and this is actually also quantifiable value that's delivered. Um, if you look at, if you talk to people in tech support or customer service, they will typically tell you that it takes a lot longer to deal with a call that has to do with an unknown defect than a call that has to do with a known defect, especially if the known defect has a workaround. And that just makes sense, right? That's just what you would expect. So you can quantify the value of the deferred bugs in terms of saved support time. I've done this uh, a time or two. Um, now, who's a stakeholder here? Well, especially the technical support, customer support, help desk, and so forth. They they really are, are keen to know about what are these deferred bugs. But you know, there are also other folks on the on the both technical and business side who will be interested in knowing about these deferred bugs. So you need to make sure that you convey that information uh, well. Now, one thing that I would caution is if, if you're finding a lot of bugs that are deferred, but the important bugs, many important bugs are being missed, then people will tend to be unhappy about that. You can't just point to, well, we found all these bugs that we now have workarounds for. That's not going to mollify them. Uh, how to know whether you're doing this. What you want to do is measure your defect detection effectiveness and look just at the critical or important bugs and see, okay, what is our defect detection effectiveness for the important bugs? Uh, and you would want your defect detection effectiveness for your important bugs to be higher than defect detection effectiveness for bugs overall. Okay. So another thing that we do when we run tests, an objective that we seek to achieve, a benefit that we deliver, is the reduction of risk. So we want to reduce the risk to quality, the risk of failures, of uh, lack of fitness for use, lack of conformance to specification to some acceptable level uh, prior to release. Now, there is a way to quantify this based on looking at the substitute value of insurance, um, but um, 
I've usually chosen just to leave this as qualitative because um, the 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 effort to do it is kind of um, I don't know, kind of hinky. It's just something that it, it, it looks like you're stretching when you do it. Um, now there is, there's a, a valid economic basis for it, but the problem is that you end up having to justify the business case, justify the, the analysis that you're doing. Better to just leave it qualitative um, rather than get uh, distracted by an argument as to whether your calculations are correct. Um, Stakeholders are concerned with the reduction of risk to an acceptable level, or particularly business stakeholders and senior management, though, of course, technical stakeholders also don't want to take extreme risks, right? So um, it's uh, really kind of an all-around all, all benefit. But again, mostly, mostly people who, are, who feel like kind of confronted by the release decision and uh, agonize over making the release decision, those are the folks who are most likely to feel uh, uh, the benefit of this. Now, um, in order to do this in a way where you can actually communicate graphically and quantitatively about the level of risk mitigation that's been achieved. Again, not, I'm not trying to quantitate, uh, quantitatively communicate about value here, but to communicate quantitatively about the level of risk reduction that's been achieved. You need to do proper risk-based testing. Now, again, this is another thing where I don't have time to go into this, but uh, fortunately there's about eight hours of, again, free video material on the RBCS YouTube channel that you can take a look at that describes our, our own technique, uh, Practical Risk Analysis and Management, or PRAM, that uh, can be used to um, fully achieve uh, proper risk reduction and uh, make it visible. So we do that, apply that properly. Um, you don't end up uh, shooting yourself in the foot, which is the meaning behind the uh, graphic here on this slide. Now, another thing that's very important, typically with good testing, is delivering credible, timely, accurate information about where are we on the project? How close are we to done? How is the process going? Well, are we, are we carrying out the process as defined? And, very importantly, What's product status in terms of quality? Um, now, you want to be able to do that in a way that's the appropriate level of detail and is appropriate um, to the, the audience who's receiving it. So um, I did a, a presentation uh, last week for the ASQ uh, chapter in Austin called Stupid Metrics Tricks and How to Avoid Them. And I have a couple recorded versions of that, again, out on the RBCS YouTube channel. Sorry to sound like a broken record, but I'm sending you out there to take advantage of these free things if you want to do that. Um, and so making sure that the way that you report the information and the metrics that you use is, uh, is, is what people need and uh, gives them the appropriate amount of information, appropriate amount of detail is really critical. So I encourage you to go um, uh, give that a listen. Um, this is generally not a value that can be quantified. Um, there are some ways of, of doing it. I've discussed those in uh, one of my books. I think it might be managing the testing process where I talk about ways that you could attempt to quantify this. And again, this is something that trying to put a numeric value on, on how much, you know, the, the, how many dollars this information is worth is likely to just get you into trouble and debates over whether you're actually doing the math right. 
So I think it's better to just use this qualitatively and, and make sure that people feel that the information that you're giving them is what they need to help them do their job better, which is usually what I ask during, uh, during assessments for people who are receiving information from test teams. Do you understand it? Does it help you do your job better? And you want the answer to answer to both of those questions to be yes, of course. Now the stakeholders here, you know, typically these are going to be decision makers, people who are um, in need of getting this information in order to make decisions. Now, of course, different people make different kinds of decisions. So developers themselves have information needs and those information needs are different than say a product owner. So you want to make sure that you are thinking about the, the kind of information that different people need and the relevance of it and be, beware the one size fits all trap. Um, so other caveats here, again, you know, too much information, either too frequently or too detailed is, is as big a problem as too little. It's what I call the, the fire, fire hose of data problem or more, more, more accurately in some cases, water cannon of data, uh, give people, exactly the information they need and no more, and as frequently as they need it. Um, beware of relying on the defect and test management tools and task management tools that you may be using. So JIRA, for example, and even the various test management plugins for JIRA is notorious for being very bad with respect to uh, test um, results reporting. So you know, plan on having to build some kind of dashboard information radiator on top of that that will um, um, improve your delivery of information. And also remember that there are psychological factors that um, get, get in the way here. Uh, as test and quality professionals, we're often the bearers of bad news. And in that case, you, uh, uh, you have a little bit of um, confirmation bias that you have to work your way through. Uh, this is something I believe I discussed in a, in a past webinar about uh, being a, a, tr a trusted advisor uh, rather than being seen as a quality cop. Again, I've uh, got you know, 10 plus years of recorded webinars going back uh, uh, all the way into the YouTube archive. So they're, they're all recorded, they're all posted there. Uh, so you may want to give that a listen if you're struggling with that. All right, reputation. Of course, one of the things that uh, organizations are typically gonna want from testing is a um, improved reputation for product or service quantity, or excuse me, quality. Um, now, you have to be careful to not put yourself in a situation where you are taking on whole responsibility here, for sure, but you want to make sure that people understand, hey, I'm helping helping promote a higher reputation. Uh, this is another thing very difficult to quantify. I wouldn't even try, just you know, survey people as to you know, how well aligned your testing is with the things that are important for your organization's uh, reputation with respect to quality. And um, uh, that should give you some, some hints as to whether you're, you're on the right track or on the wrong track. Um, so a couple more caveats here again, you know, make sure that everybody accepts their role in quality. Don't, um, you don't want to be in a situation where people short circuit upstream activities like reviews or 
unit testing or something like that and say, ah, yeah, you know, the testers will get that stuff eventually when we give it to them. Uh, I've seen endless variations of that, and it's just not, uh, it's not something you want happening. Pardon my dry throat here. We're having a beautiful sunny day here, sunny November, mid-November day in South Texas, and it's also a little dry, so my throat's a little dried out, and you can probably tell. Um, yeah, one last point to make on this slide. Um, people need to understand that testing is a filter, not a shield. It filters out some percentage of the defects. It will not catch all of them. So um, you need to make sure that uh, people understand that and that um, you know some, some level of defect detection effectiveness less, defect detection effectiveness less than 100% is appropriate. Um, release support. This is something else that we do. Uh, if we uh, do our testing well, we do risk-based testing, um, we should be able to help people have less excitement, less drama as releases come up. So if every sprint ends with some sort of crisis, oh my God, oh my God, showstopper bugs and so forth, then um, we need to figure out how to shift left basically to move the discovery and removal of defects upstream into that sprint process. I was working with a client last year where really like in the last two or three days of every sprint, two week long sprints, people were running around with their hair totally on fire. Why? Because the bulk of the testing activity didn't start until the, um, that point, that last two or three days of the sprint. And, uh, another common worst practice with respect to testing and quality was going on there, which is underestimating the number of defects that will be found. Of course, they end up finding massive numbers of defects, showstopper defects. And again, it's just a hair on fire type of scenario. So this is where you, you know, have conversations about, hey, guys, let's try to uh, define our user stories in smaller pieces and uh, make sure that we are... Um, getting the test execution going earlier, that we're building those pieces in a risk order kind of way so that we're testing the most important stuff up front and so forth. Oops, sorry, we had a, I'm not sure why that keeps happening again, more, more fun Microsoft bugs. All right, so confidence is another thing that we can provide now. Um, I like the, like the graphic here of the, I'm assuming that this is photoshopped. Um, it's, a, it's a pretty hilarious thing of a, a cat walking towards an enormous eagle like that. Uh, that is some some level of confidence, and that's probably false confidence. So you want to avoid building that kind of confidence. Um, but what I'm talking about here is building proper confidence in in the product. Um, now, this is not something that you can put a put a dollar figure on typically, but a lot of people are very concerned about this. Do they feel confident in the product before it goes into production? Uh, and so in order to do that, keep in mind, they're going to need to be confident in the testing that you're doing before the testing can be seen as something that builds their confidence in the product. And obviously the confidence building is, is a matter of, it's influenced by the, uh, 
test results too. So if the test results say the product has a lot of problems, this is not confidence building, now that's hardly your fault. So you need to make sure that people understand, hey, you know, have confidence in the thoroughness of the testing. If the results are saying the product is too risky to release, then we should avoid releasing it, right? So this gets back to avoiding the false confidence and this whole uh, thing of, of helping to manage risk. And here we see what you don't want to have happen to you, the infamous perp walk. Um, somebody, somebody going to jail. Um, is that, does that happen? It certainly can in certain situations. There can be legal or regulatory um, requirements that do potentially have uh, criminal penalties. I had a uh, client tell me that they had a managing director of their Korean branch almost arrested because of something that it turned out got missed during testing and it was a pretty uh, pretty significant thing. So, uh, you know, that's bad. Another thing that can happen is not necessarily associated with arrest, but just lawsuits. Um, one of the projects I'm working on right now is a big um, expert witness thing for a lawsuit that's like $180 million. Uh, so, you know, you wanna keep in mind that there can be some legal and regulatory aspects that need to be addressed. So um, if this is something that your stakeholders, especially management type of stakeholders care about, then uh, figure out um, what those legal and regulatory risks are. Uh, I'm familiar with people who've worked in FDA regulated fields and uh, um, it's easy to miss things there. And if you do, then that can get you quite sideways with the Food and Drug Administration, which is not a good place to be if you're an FDA regulated uh, company. Now, if you find there are risks that you can't address, you need to make sure that you escalate those, uh, especially if we're talking about mission critical or safety critical applications, um, you know, situations where it isn't gonna be an oh well if you miss something. Uh, so take uh, special care with this if this is relevant. And if you're not sure whether it is or isn't relevant, I would recommend finding out. Okay. So um, we looked at what testing is good for. Well, okay, there's also, you make the negative case against short-circuiting it by saying, well, look, you, these are things that could end up happening if we don't do enough testing. Uh, costs will go up. So, you know, I showed that those figures earlier where um, it looks like an insufficient amount of money is being spent on testing relative to the amount of money that's wasted on defects that get out into production, right? So cost goes up, customer satisfaction goes down, and you know it's, it can be a very competitive world, so that's not a good thing to have happen. Uh, finding defects late leads to schedule delays. When defects pop up in production, they consume people's time, and that means that they're not building new features, so that's in economic terms waste, uh, which rework and leads to further schedule delays. Um, risk going up, risk of something bad happening in production as we've discussed, and just morale. You know, people people don't generally want to be associated with, with bad work, with crappy work, right? So if they have a lot of concerns about the um, quality of what's being delivered, um, you will see morale go down. And I saw this with that client I was talking about that had like the last two or three days of every 10 day sprint was just a hair on fire disaster. 
yeah, their morale there was horrible and they were losing their best people on a, on a regular basis. So final point, it helps to make sure that people understand the relationship between testing and quality. What, what can we, what can we do? Well, well, we support quality. Um, we can give confidence when the tests show that there are relatively few bugs, confidence in the quality. When tests pass, that reduces the, the risk of a previously undiscovered failure in that particular area. Well, that's good. If a test fails, that is also associated with quality. People sometimes get confused about this, but think about it. If, you, if a test fails, that now gives the organization a chance to improve quality. So failed tests should be seen as a good thing, creating an opportunity to make quality better. And overall, the tests will give an assessment of quality, and, and that relates to that information benefit that I was describing before. Now, in order for any of these kinds of uh, outcomes to occur, you need to make sure that you are focusing on the most important quality characteristics and you're not missing some, especially the non-functional stuff. People do tend to miss the non-functional stuff, things like performance and portability and reliability and so forth. And when they miss those things, bad things happen. So don't just think about functionality, think about the non-functional stuff too. Now, ideally, um, when you're doing your testing, this is not the only thing that people are relying on to support higher quality. There should be a larger quality strategy for all different Groups involved in testing, users, testers, developers, right? The, uh, or not users, the product owners, the so-called three amigos uh, rule. So you wanna try to make sure that it's not just throw it over the wall and let the testers make sure it has quality. You also wanna try to move towards not just shift left, discovering defects earlier, closer to the point of introduction, but also shift down, which is where you do root cause analysis to try to figure out, well, why are we having these defects to begin with and what kind of improvements can we make? Now that's a pretty high level of maturity, but that's really where you, where you wanna go and you wanna make sure that people are thinking of that. Now, there's an old expression, um, when you're up to your butt in alligators, you forget that what you came to do was to drain the swamp. Okay, the same thing can apply here, that when you're dealing with endless software testing and software quality crises, it can be easy to forget that what you really wanna do is shift left and shift down. But if you don't make time in your schedule for process improvement, one of the problems that you'll have is that your process will never improve obviously, and you'll never get any better. All right, so you may remember Rod, Rodney Dangerfield, his famous line, I get no respect. Testing doesn't always get the respect that it deserves either, but hopefully by this review that I went through of the at least eight different ways that testing can deliver value, this gives you some ideas of how you do deliver value and how you can communicate that value to the appropriate stakeholders. Now, of course, you have to do the testing properly to create the value in order to deliver the value. Excuse me. And once delivering the value, 
You have to make sure that people actually realize that they have received something valuable. It's that last piece, that last step that often does get left out. I've worked with plenty of testing organizations doing assessments and so forth where they are doing good work and they are delivering the value, but the stakeholders don't appreciate it. So, excuse me, a very dry throat here. Um, make sure that you do connect the value to what they care about and that they're aware of it. And of course, constantly improve the value that you are delivering. <clears throat> okay. So as always, we will go to the advertisement here. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, let's see. Still mastering the intricacies of Zoom here. Um, so I need to try to get the Q&A panel up. And let's see. What do we got? We're waiting for questions to show up here. We will um, take a couple um, questions that came in um, via email. Um, okay, first question. I can't convince my management that testing is important and we keep getting our resources cut. So what should I do? Okay, so what I would recommend in this particular uh, situation is that you uh, first off identify using the the hints that I gave in this presentation uh, who your stakeholders are and then start to identify of those lists of eight things kind of okay which which of those eight things are likely to matter here they, they may they may all matter there may be some that don't maybe you have no legal and regulatory uh, considerations so you might be able to uh, uh, scratch that off the list entirely but of those of those eight things I went through list them and then list your stakeholders and then draw a line connecting the stakeholders to the things they value and at that point you can start having a conversation with your stakeholders about these values that you're delivering and are they feel that they're receiving them and talk about ways to measure them and so forth putting some uh, perhaps metrics in place um, testing is, is often taken for granted in organizations. And so, um, you want to, uh, try to, try to, as, as my, uh, friend and, and colleague, Mike Lyles put it, uh, toot your own horn without blowing it. Uh, in other words, you know, make sure that you're getting people, uh, thinking about the, uh, the valuable stuff that you do while at the same time not coming across like a braggadocious uh, know-it-all. Uh, so uh, work on striking that correct balance. But keep in mind, you know, if you're, if you're a developer or a development manager uh, in that kind of role, the value that you deliver is just right there in everybody's face. I mean, you're, you're, you're the one that, that writes the code that makes the, the magic happen, right? In testing, we are, we are in a supporting role. We're in a service role, basically. We are providing a valuable service to the organization. And that's, the value of that is not always visible to people. So you gotta take it on yourself to, uh, to um, you know, provide that visibility and make sure that people are um, um, you know, aware of it. 
All right, uh, let's see, another question here. Um, do you have more material on cost of quality and using that to construct a business case? Well, yes, for sure. Go to the RBCS YouTube channel and do a search on cost of quality. I've done at least one webinar on cost of quality. I think maybe, maybe more than one. In fact, I think I did a one key idea webinar on it like a year ago. It's a real quick introduction to how to use cost of quality to calculate value. And as I said, there's also an article out on the website. And uh, with that article, there is an Excel uh, calculator that you can use. Uh, it's really straightforward. I mean, I, <laughs> I remember reading this book once it's talking about analyzing software ROI, return on investment. And, and before we even got out of the first chapter, this guy was like doing partial differential equations and so forth. I'm like, dude, that, that, there's just no way. Uh, I, I vaguely remember the uh, calculus class that I had to take as a engineer in college uh, to get my engineering degree. And I, yeah, I mean, I, I remember what a partial differential equation is. The odds that I could sit down and actually solve a partial differential equation now without totally shooting myself in the foot and making some major mistake that undermined my credibility, that's pretty much zero. Fortunately, with cost of quality, there's no partial differential equations or any nonsense like that. Uh, basically, it's addition, subtraction, multiplication, and division. And I'm sure we all remember how to do that. So it's nice and simple. Also, cost of quality goes way back to J.M. Duran and Frank Greeno's book, uh, Quality Control Handbook, if I'm remembering the name properly. So you know, it's got 70-ish years of history behind it. has been demonstrated in a wide variety of fields. I've used it with a bunch of clients before to measure the value of testing, and it's, it's quite a reliable uh, metric. By the way, the typical return on investment for um, software testing uh, measured in terms primarily of uh, defects found prior to release is 800%. In other words, every dollar spent on testing saves $8, uh, which is another reason why I say, you know, when that said in that earlier slide, we really uh, underinvest uh, quite a bit. Uh, you think of, you know, eight, uh, what was the figure, 800 trillion or no, four, 400, four, 4 trillion. So 400 million being lost due to avoidable cost of production failure, right? Uh, well, yeah, that's all avoidable. And that's, that's where, that's how cost of quality works is because you're trying to avoid those, those costs. And we've got another question here. Um, do these justifications work for agile organizations? The answer is for sure. Absolutely. Now the, the way in which you deliver the value is different agile versus waterfall. Uh, but definitely the same kind of arguments work. And, you know, as more and more of my clients, and that's really the, the majority of my clients are doing water, doing agile development or some variant Kanban, uh, safe uh, DevOps. Uh, these same values keep manifesting themselves over and over again. And the, the consequences of not doing testing adequately also manifest themselves over and over again. So, you know, I think it's fair to say that this, uh, these, these values are, are, uh, uh, I don't know, eternal is the wrong word because eventually software engineering will be transformed by artificial intelligence most likely. But certainly 
these values are not diminished by changes in the software development lifecycle. Just as a, as a whole, I would say that, that one of the big mistakes we've made in software engineering over the last quarter century is vastly overestimating the amount of value that occurs and the amount of transformation that occurs when we move to the new, bright, shiny uh, software development lifecycle model. Uh, kind of in the earlier part of software engineering, the um, idea was if we just get the language right, the, the programming language right, all of our software development problems will go away. Um, and then that in the late mid 1990s changed over to if we just get the process right, all of our software development problems will go away. But you know, neither of those things have, have, have been true. I would encourage those of you who kind of hearing this from me for the first time to go look up a uh, essay by a guy named Fred Brooks called No Silver Bullets. And uh, that really gets into the, you know, why these things that are hailed as so, you know, going to be so immensely transformative, like advances in the programming language or like uh, improvements in software development life cycles end up being pretty over underwhelming. Um, I got a comment here from Tony. Tony, thanks for, uh, for chiming in. Tony says, Advertising the value of testing can be a long-term process with management. I recommend starting with a local software development team. Testers and test management can greatly add value to software development efforts. That's a, that's a really good point, Tony. It is, it is a long-term process. So don't expect that you're going to take these slides, you know, download them afterwards and go, okay, I'm going to sit down and merrily start beavering away on that process that Rex was talking about. And by the end of the day, you're going to have this, cool little you know, set of graphics that uh, shows how great testing is and you distribute it to your entire organization and they all go, oh, oh, testing is so wonderful, we didn't understand. Tony's absolutely right, it's going to be something that uh, you know, you're, uh, you're gonna have to um, uh, spend time working on and you're gonna have to you know, spend time understanding the specific values that appeal to particular people and making sure that you're communicating those uh, well. So Tony, thanks for that, uh, uh, that um, question. Uh, any other questions or comments from anyone? No, okay, well, seeing no further questions, I'll go ahead and close the session down. So just a little bit more about our resources. Uh, we do these free webinars once a month, so check our website, rbcs-us.com, to sign up. If you would like a special webinar presentation for your company only of this webinar or really any topic related to software testing, uh, contact us, info at rbcs-us.com or via our website. So for example, I just uh, started doing a uh, series of um, webinars for Luxoft that are gonna be publicly released and be part of a series that they're doing. So if you guys are, anyone else is interested in that, uh, let me know, happy to do those. Um, you can sign up for our free newsletter at rbcs-us.com, which will give you valuable discounts on consulting and training and uh, newsletters that uh, give you some idea about what we're, what we're up to. Uh, you see all my uh, social media coordinates over there. Um, the uh, Twitter and LinkedIn and so forth. Uh, feel free to uh, connect with me uh, on any of those. If you send me a LinkedIn request, for example, I'll accept it. 
uh, you can say, hey, heard you on the webinar, I thought it was good, so please connect with me, happy to do that. Um, there's our digital library. Uh, you can access uh, recordings of these webinars, um, podcasts, videos, other good stuff. You can also subscribe to the podcast so you see the coordinates there. So if you don't have time to regularly tune in to listen to these or to spend time on YouTube watching them or anything like that, you, you do have time to listen to them while like, you're commuting or something. Um, you can uh, subscribe to the podcast. Most of these webinars are uh, pretty good fits for podcasts. You don't, you don't necessarily have to be able to see the screen. Some of them are more inherently graphical. And so the podcast can be a little bit more challenging. If that's the case, what you can do is uh, download the slides. The slides are always posted. And so you can download the slides and, and just uh, look at those. Um, and, and that'll give some context to, uh, to the podcast. So lots of free stuff that we give away here. Uh, we offer these free resources as a service to the software testing community because at RBCS, we are a not just for profit company. But as I said before, we do need to keep the lights on. So if you feel that these webinars demonstrate an understanding of your testing challenges, please allow us to bid on the next test consulting, assessment, training, or expert services work that you have. We don't expect to win all of your business, but we would be uh, we would like to think that uh, giving the kinds of services we give to the software testing community uh, earns us the right to try to get your business. So it concludes this webinar. Uh, I'd like to thank everyone for joining us today and look forward to seeing you on subsequent webinars.